If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com backslash FPA. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. If you would like to earn continuing education credit for your FP&A certification from the Association of Finance Professionals for listening to the show, go to the show notes for details on how to earn the credit. Finally, if you enjoy listening to FP&A today, please go to your podcast platform of choice, click the subscribe button, and leave a rating and review of the show. And now, on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy. FPNA Today is brought to you by Data Rails, the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis. Today, we are delighted to welcome to the show, Andy Lynch. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Paul. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for uh, having me on. Yeah, no, we're really excited to have you. So let me just give a little bit of information about Andy, and we'll give him an opportunity to share more about himself here shortly. So he's coming to us from the UK. He's currently head of FP&A at Blue Light Card. He is a prolific writer with his own website. He writes quite a few articles, both some personal as well as some business ones, and he earned a degree in economics. So we're going to start with a question we like to ask everybody. What's the worst budgeting experience you've ever had in your career? Well, uh, this is quite a timely question because it's entirely possible the answer is the budget experience I'm going through right now. (laughs) And that is... No slight on the organization at all. Um, It's a phenomenal company. Everyone's working incredibly hard with a quite a valuable mission. Like I say, the company is Blue Light Card. So we provide a um, discount card for emergency services workers, NHS staff, police, fire, ambulance, and a few other member groups here in the UK. So it's only open to those in those important professions. And through becoming a Blue Light card holder, they can get discounts at various retailers, online stores, and things like that. Um, so it's really good helping um, you know the people who look after us save a few pounds and helping the uh, retail partners as well connect with that audience and ultimately drive more revenue. But the FP&A team itself is new. Um, so there's a couple of us who are new in the team. Um, and we are dealing with all of the standard Excel problems. And separately, we can talk about how data rails might be able to solve this. There's a um, budget version over here. There's a different one over here. Someone's copied and pasted some numbers into a different SharePoint doc over here. We did some retargeting midway through the financial year. So now some people are kind of calling that the reforecast or some people are calling it target. Which one do we want to benchmark to? How do we flow that through into next year's targets? And we're trying to do all this and, and start off this budget process now, while also because the FPNA team is fairly new, build out all of the modeling and forecasting tools that we need. So we're not just picking up a model that someone else built, refining it, you know, uh, adjusting the assumptions and taking it forward. We're rebuilding it all completely from scratch with me, who's been in the organization for two months and my team have been there for you know a month and a half. So it's fun. It's really good fun, but it is challenging going through the budgeting process itself while also building out all of the tooling at the same time and all of those models from scratch. Um, it's a lot of work, but it is really good fun. In terms of slightly less positive experiences or slightly less positive challenges, uh, I do remember a couple of times where um, I was working for a company that did like outsourced services. So we had um, contracts with various different um, customers of ours. 
So we agreed to like provide a certain level of services to them in terms like cleaning, reception, security, that kind of thing. Um, and they'd give us a fixed fee for that. And all of those were kind of costed on a tender model basis. And part of that tender model, you have to submit to them how much you're actually um, adding as you know a profit margin. And ultimately, the game is to keep that number very low. So the potential customer thinks you're not making a tremendous amount of profit and you look good. Um, and the you know the plus in the cost plus contract is quite low and that looks positive but hidden within that is a bunch of other costs that kind of bump up the price a bit that may or may not actually be reflected in that thing so when we came time to budget we had a couple of uh, contract managers who we asked them you know how much do you think you're going to generate in gross profit on this contract this year and they would say well you know the cost model says it's uh, 50 grand a year so so we should be at around 50 grand a year um, and i had to point out to them that you know, year to date, only nine months into the year, they had already generated 80 grand or 100 grand. And so you're coming at me and telling me that you're going to generate half the amount of profit next year. And they were going, well, that's what's in the model. I'm like, yes, but you know, and I know that the model doesn't exactly reflect how we account for it internally. So what are you going to do? Or how are you going to close that gap? Or what's realistic? And they came at it with the point of view of, well, well you know, your financer, you're going to tell me a high number and I'll tell you a low number and we'll negotiate and meet somewhere in the middle, won't we? Um, at which point the owner of the company jumped in and said, stop, that's nonsense. What are you talking about? We know what the performance of this looks like. We're reporting it in the same way now as we will in the future. So we're actually just going to start with this year's actuals as a base and go, is it going to go up or down from this year? And he was like, oh, well, it'll be about the same. But trying to negotiate with and push the like business partners towards recognizing how we were thinking about and how we would report on the performance rather than just picking a number out of a model that, frankly, they know to be spurious, but they're using it as a kind of negotiation and debating tool, ultimately, because their you know, comp and performance reviews and bonuses depend on how much profit they generate off these contracts. So dealing with those kind of, to a certain degree, conflicts of interest, but as with any budget process, you know, trying trying to arrive at a target number that is both realistic, but also a bit challenging, you know, just challenging enough to push the organization, not so challenging that you get one quarter in and you're miles behind target already and everyone gets disillusioned. And playing around with that tension um, is, uh, is always fun. But yeah, that was a, a particularly challenging experience, trying to get those business partners on board with that idea. Yeah, I can still remember one time we were trying to get, you know, the profit on different uh, programs we had. And one of the guys said, hey, I think the number will be X, like throughout like 100,000. And it ended up being like two or three million. And I pointed that out when he gave me a low number the next time. And, you know, the head of the sales team is like, we're not sandbagging by chance, are we? You know, and so totally know what you're talking about because the incentives and they want to exceed the number. And so you try to come in with something that isn't realistic. And it's one of the big challenges of budgeting is often you're tying your targets to your budget process. And so it leads to a lot of game playing, as you mentioned, misaligned incentives, and it can be a real challenge to work through that. Yeah, and it's ultimately like part of the fun of being an FP&A, right, is that you get to be in all of these conversations and you get to see like how does the sales team talk to the ops team, talk to finance, talk to HR, ultimately talk to the CEO or the leadership team. And, you know, you kind of see how the sausage gets made in terms of financial planning, target setting, how that cascades down through the organization. And um it's great to be a fly on the wall in those. And it also highlights just how important it is for FP&A to kind of play the policeman role or kind of the neutral arbiter. So like, you know, we have a plan and we have a model that says, you know, all being well and good. And if all these assumptions hold, like we should end up at this number. It's up to you as the business to tell me like which of the assumptions in my model are wrong or are going to change or what, um, you know, management action are we going to take that means the future is going to be different in terms of trends from the past. 
and then working with them to arrive at that. But but at FPNA, you do have a, a sort of good cop, bad cop role sometimes where you can either choose to be the good cop or the bad cop, depending on, you know, how your CFO or your CEO wants to play a particular meeting. But again, it's all um, it's always good fun. Ultimately, you're always trying to get to the right answer, right? Yeah, I know. Definitely. It can be a lot of fun and it's interesting to watch. So next question we have for you is, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? I know you're heading up FP&A for a company now, but maybe how you got started in FP&A and just a little bit of your journey. Yeah, sure. So um, like you mentioned earlier, so I graduated from uh, the University of Leeds with an economics degree. I started that econ degree in September 2008. So I think like our first like econ lecture, we were just walking in and we saw on the news about um, either like Lehman or Bear Stearns collapsing. Just as I was, you know, heading off into the world of economics, that was good fun. So it wasn't wasn't necessarily the best time in the world to get into the market. But yeah, I did an econ degree for three years and then graduated and joined um, an insurance company on their finance graduate scheme. So the idea was that over the three years, you know, you, you rotate around in a number of different placements. So we'd do one in um, finance, which is a mix of kind of accounting and FBNA, one in like regulatory compliance, one in governance and risk management, and then one in internal audit, and then ultimately like pick and choose where you wanted your career to go after that. Um, so I started out in finance, really enjoyed the finance placement, got my start, you know, posting journal feeds to our ERP, which was Navision back in the day, the old Microsoft, the precursor to Dynamics Business Central as it is now. So did that for nine months. Um, it was good fun, learned a lot, um, got involved in a lot of things, moved on to my next placement in regulatory compliance. And then while I was in that role, uh, a permanent role became available in that team, um, which was a bit more money and a chance to jump off the grant scheme. So I took that and I did that for about two years, at which point I was still doing all of my accounting exams in the background. So I'm I'm now SEMA qualified. The, it's a UK specific uh, accounting qualification. It's not quite the same as being a CPA, but it's not far off. It's definitely the best one if you want to be an FPN anyway. So I was doing all my accounting exams, but I was actually working in a completely non-finance role and it's kind of regulatory like compliance advisory role. Got to the end of all my accounting exams, went, great, I can be a qualified accountant now as long as I um, have the relevant experience, which was three years requirement of experience with at least 18 months in these core finance roles, which I went, oh, damn, I'm nowhere near that. I only have nine months uh, finance experience. That's not very good. So I started looking around for um, another finance role to jump into. Um, at which point out of left field, I had the opportunity to go and join a startup over in the US. Um, so I went to work as the first full-time hire for a company called Scribe Media, um, which was then called Book in a Box, which helps people write and publish their own books. And so it's kind of a, a boutique professional, a boutique services company, essentially. So we had, you know, writers and book cover designers and people like that on staff. But yeah, it was a kind of once in a lifetime chance to just go and join a startup as the first full-time employee and help build something from scratch. In a completely non-finance role, it was very much kind of operations, building up processes from scratch, um, which was really good fun. I did that for about a year um, and then came back to the UK and was looking for my next opportunity, um, at which point I went, well, I, I was kind of good at finance. Uh, this was like four years ago now, but when I was in that finance role four and a half years ago, four years ago, I was pretty good at it. I quite enjoyed it. Maybe I should look around for another finance role. And actually like struggled to find somewhere that would take me because at that point in my career, I was probably 26 um, and I was applying for, you know, management accountant roles or finance analyst roles. And they would say, you know, tell us about your finance experience. And I would say, oh, I did nine months in finance four years ago. And they would go, what? Why do you want a finance role now? So it was actually a bit of a struggle to get back into it. But I got a little bit lucky in that I came across um, a guy who's now um, became a mentor and a friend who was finance director of a small company. This is the um, facilities management company that I mentioned. So it was a little SME. It was turning over about $20 million a year. And it had a you know finance team of four or five people. 
he was brand new in as the the finance director, the CFO essentially, and needed a, a number two. And for whatever reason, decided to take a chance on me, you know, the guy who had only nine months of finance experience four years ago. So I was a bit green and new to it when I jumped, when I joined, but I learned a ton from him and he kind of quickly trained me up. I got qualified, got promoted to be head of finance, started line managing, started doing everything from kind of treasury management, relationships with auditors, all the budgeting, all the forecasting, all the reporting, kind of owning that um, soup to nuts in an an SME environment, which is really good fun. And did that for three years. So over that time, we kind of doubled the revenue of the company and took it from a sort of break-even-ish place to a million pounds plus in net profit. Ultimately, that was a successful exit for the founder as well. I think they exited about 18 months after I left. So at that point, I was a you know qualified accountant, had a bit of line manager experience and looking for the next challenge, but had only ever really worked in this SME, apart from my brief grad stint in a bigger company. So I went to work for a big multinational. So I went to work for Capital One UK. So obviously everyone in the States and in the UK will know Capital One. In the States, obviously there are a complete set of financial services. So retail banking, credit cards, consumer and auto loans, um, small business banking, business credit cards. It's a huge organization in the US. The UK arm's a bit smaller, so it's just uh, like a monoline credit card business. There's no retail banking or anything like that. Um, so it's just a lending business. Um, but I joined them as their head of finance analytics, which is in the FP&A team, but it was almost unique in FP&A roles in that I had almost no input into the regular forecasting and no input into um, month-end and reporting and things. My team and I were like just working on long-term like strategic scenario planning stuff. So five and 10-year financial modeling, reporting on kind of big changes to strategy. And if we went after this customer segment or that customer segment, what does that do to the PL over the long term? It's really, really good grounding in FPNA. Um I learned a, a ton from a really, really good team there. Um, and that was really kind of my first proper, proper FPNA role with any kind of, you know, responsibility and activity. It was really good fun. I did that for two years then jumped over to join another an SME as their finance director again. Again, went back into the SME world and helped them put together proper budgeting and forecasting, variance analysis, the right set of KPIs, reporting them on the right cadence, and kind of driving that financial improvement there. Again, that was um, another sort of two-year stint, and then you might be sensing a bit of a two-year pattern here. Um, got a call about another role that came up, which is the blue light card role, um, which ultimately where I am now. Um, so it's been a kind of a bit of a circuitous route, a very non-traditional finance route. I've had large stretches of my career where I've been in non-finance roles and I've kind of jumped from big company to startup to small company to big company to small company and now to a sort of, maybe I've found my my level at a medium-sized company. <laughs> so yeah, it's been quite a, a long and circuitous route, but FP&A is ultimately where, I've, um, uh, where I really enjoy spending my time. It, like we said earlier, you get to see every part of the business, you get to be involved in the important conversations that are happening at every level. And for someone who's both curious and a bit nosy like me, as well as very um, you know analytical and commercially focused, there's no better place to be than FP&A in my mind. Thanks. Appreciate sharing the background and agree with you. FP&A is a great place to be. You get to see the whole business. You get to be involved in things. It's a, it's a great role, like you mentioned, for the analytical side, for the business partnering, for being involved. You know, kind of stepping back, you mentioned, you know, someone took a chance on you. And when you and I chatted, you talked about that mentor a little bit and the role they played. So maybe talk a little bit why mentoring or a mentor has been so important to you in your career. Like I said, the immediate importance of him was that at that time in my career, I was to a certain degree struggling to find a finance role. 
and he was, I guess, happy to accept the risk that it may or may not work out. But for whatever reason, he saw something in me and thought, you know, I like this guy and I can work with him and I can train him up in the way I need to. So first and foremost, without him deciding to take on a chance on me, my career would probably look quite different to where, where it is now. I also got very lucky in that, I guess this was, so this was pre-COVID. So it was very much the um, era of five days in the office uh, working. And I was lucky enough that he himself had a background in um, organizations of all sizes. So he'd worked in audit, he'd worked in huge public companies in reporting and FP&A roles, private organizations, PE-backed companies. But the, the company that we found ourselves working in together was a sort of 300-person company, and the finance team was only five or six people. And so for pretty much five days a week, um, for three years, I was sat next to him and in every meeting that he was in and constantly kind of learning and soaking up from this person at a very close level. And I think when you're early on in your career, that kind of learning by osmosis or like tacit learning and picking up how to act and how to talk in a meeting, how to model something in Excel, how to deal with senior stakeholders, like just by working closely with someone and observing them, you can kind of learn a lot of those skills, you know, almost by osmosis and by by role modeling, by having a good role model that you can learn from. It was just such a, an impactful time in my career on me. So being able to work with someone of his caliber that closely for so long um, made a tremendous difference. I think to your point, more generally in your career, there's always, you know, unless you're the CEO or the founder or something, there's always someone who's a couple of steps ahead of where you are. Maybe they're one level above you or two levels above you. And you've got to think, okay, what, what, what do they do differently? How do they think differently? How do they act? How do they talk? What issues are they thinking about or what level are they thinking about things that's different to how I'm currently working? And then how can I, you know, turn myself more into that? Or how, what can I pick up from them and what can I learn from them? And how do I need to be thinking about things as a, you know, an FPNA manager versus a head of FPNA or a VP or a CFO? Um, and what are the differences at all of those levels? And you can, if you're observant and smart about it, you can kind of see that while you're on the job. You don't necessarily need someone to tell you in a performance review or a one-to-one. You know, if you want to go from manager to VP, here's what you need to do. You can see how the VPs act differently to the managers or the senior managers, for example, and pick up on what those differences are and um, learn from them. As well as obviously, you can just directly ask people, you know, when you were in my shoes five years ago or two years ago, what did you do to get from this level to that level? Or what did you dif- do differently? Or what were the things that you were thinking about and how to manage your career you know, over the next five years? And having people tell you that openly and honestly in a one-to-one or over a cup of coffee or a beer or something is invaluable. You know, It's the kind of stuff you just can't read in books or blogs or see on YouTube. You have to be you know, in it and you have to, have to hear it from the horse's mouth sort of thing. Yeah. So something you said there reminded me of... Uh... You know, something as you mentioned, you know, watching and seeing how someone that's at a higher level, you, how they act, how they behave, how they do things. You know, I've once heard it said that you should always act, behave for the role you want, not the role you have, right? Same kind of idea. What are they doing that I can implement so I can get to the role I want? So, you know, a little uh, follow-up question here around mentoring. So what's your advice for someone to kind of find a mentor or has a mentor, someone's listening and they're thinking, you know, I need a, I need a mentor. I need someone to help me. Any advice you can offer there? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess um, to a certain degree, like the people I've found as mentors have ultimately ended up being uh, people that I've been working with. Obviously, some companies offer slightly more formal and slightly more structured mentorship schemes. Um, I've done a couple of them in my time. They're hugely valuable particularly if they um, partner you with you know, a mentor who maybe works in a different line of business or works in a different function or something like that, just to get kind of an outside perspective. So if there are any more structured mentor schemes like that that your company offers, 
100% take them up on it. Some professional organizations also do this as well. So I mentioned SEMA, the Chartered Institute of Management Accounting here in the UK, have a, a mentorship scheme where you can, um, you know, as a qualified accountant, you can opt to be a mentor to people who are studying or part qualified, or you can, you know, grab a mentor who might be a CFO or, you know, 20 years experience to your 10 or something like that. Sli- on a slightly more like informal basis, as you, you've got to be observant to the people in your organization. So if I think about, say, um, you know, an FP&A team of sort of 40 or 50 people at a big company. So within that, if you're an FP&A analyst who's, you know, relatively junior, sort of three, four years experience, in that department of 40, there's probably four or five people who are at sort of manager level and then another couple at sort of director level and maybe a, a head of FP&A or a VP or something. So within that set of kind of six to seven people, one of them is probably your direct line manager, which is great. Maybe they're a mentor. You can ask them that advice. Hopefully they're um, open to giving you you know, career development advice. But if there's also someone else in that manager set that you admire or that you think is incredibly helpful or open, those people are super happy and super receptive to you know you pulling them aside or just saying hey can i just grab like 20 minutes with you to talk through um something i'm thinking about or you know some career advice or things like that i'd be more than happy to do that for anyone i've done it a number of times in the past and most people who are at the sort of manager or senior manager level or even vp level are more than happy to pay it forward so first and foremost you just got to ask for it and then secondly if someone does give you some advice or says you know go and think about this or think about this the follow-up is incredibly important so being able to go back to them in three months time and say oh thanks for that advice you know you said a b and c would be good i did them and here are the results incredibly useful great thanks for that i'm thinking about this now what do you think and kind of keeping that loose connection going over time ultimately is kind of how you form the really really strong mentor relationship but I would say most people are more than happy to provide a bit of advice if you want to, as long as you make it a little bit easier for them. Don't walk up to someone and go, hi, I've I've been watching you from afar and I would like you to be my mentor. Uh, I need 90 minutes once a month for you, f- uh, you know, from now for the next five years. They'll probably say no. But if you start off on a slightly more informal basis and kind of build it slowly over time from there, that's kind of what I'd recommend. Good advice. Yeah, I agree with you. I wouldn't recommend going up and asking for a five-year uh, commitment at 90, 90 minutes a month might might not work out in your favor. If it does, I guess more power to you, but I wouldn't expect it to. No, or if it does, you'll probably get an invoice from them for their time because people like that are quite busy. Exactly. Here's the bill. That will be 400 a month or whatever. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates, you never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FP&A machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com
You know, there's a term you and I talked about before this interview that you're a fan of, the concept of skill stacking. So can maybe talk a little bit about that concept, what that is? Yeah, sure. So skill stacking refers to the idea that it's usually both easier and if you're trying to generate a living or be good at your job or do something, it's usually easier to try and be sort of top 25% in the world at maybe four or five different related things than it is to try and be, you know, the best in the world at one specific thing. So like I'll take a non-work for example, a non-work example first. So like if you're, um, if you like chess, if you want to be the best chess player in the world and make, um, you know, $2 million a year or something, you probably have to be the best chess player in the world which is incredibly difficult, incredibly competitive. Guys like Magnus Carlsen have been playing chess since they were two years old. If you suddenly decided you want to try and beat them, that's very, very, very difficult. Um, and it's going to be incredibly hard to make a living as a chess player unless you're you know, the top 0.01% in the world. But what if you're a top 20% chess player in the world and you're also quite good at public speaking and you're quite good at internet marketing, well, you could probably make a pretty good living live streaming chess on Twitch and doing YouTube tutorials and stuff like that, which a number of people do pretty well. So the idea that like being the best in the world at chess is incredibly hard, being top 20% in the world at that, and also being a very good you know, video editor and communicator is probably easier or is, is definitely easier than trying to be the best chess player in the world, but is just as likely to lead to you know, a positive outcome or uh, at least a good way to earn a living. So if I think about this in terms of you know, my career, I, you know, I'm pretty good at Excel, but I'm not the best in the world. That's for sure. I've watched the Excel World Championships. Those guys are a lot better than me, than I am. And um, I'm not <laughs> the best accountant in the world. You know, I've never worked in audit. I don't know accounting standards like the back of my hand. I don't really care that much about specifics of, you know, tax, whatever, or tax optimization strategies, that kind of thing. I'm not the best, but I'm pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm qualified. I'm quite good at communicating. I'm happy presenting in front of an audience and I'm a reasonable writer. And if you combine all of those skills together, actually what you get is a, a pretty good head of FBNA. I don't need to be the best in the world and know everything there is to know about tax because someone else does that, someone who's a specialty in tax. I don't need to know how to do you know everything to the nth degree in Excel, but I know enough to do a pretty damn good model. And I can speak well and eloquently enough in front of an audience that I'm comfortable, you know, presenting that that analysis or a forecast or something to a board and a set of senior stakeholders. So I'm not nowhere near the best in the world in any of these specific skills, but combining a bunch of them on top of each other, I end up in a pretty good place. That's kind of broadly the idea of skill stacking. It makes sense, right? Taking three or four things you're good at and using them to make yourself unique and stand out. Right. Like, for example, you could be really good at FP&A, but also pretty good at conversing and interviewing people and pretty good at writing content. And you could create a pretty good career as the FP&A guy. You know, it's not something that stands out or something that immediately comes to mind. But when you combine a few different skills, you end up in a pretty good spot. Yeah, it definitely has put me in a unique spot. And it's fun. I enjoy interviewing people. And I was okay at FP&A. So, you know, I combined the two together and it works. We won't say how okay I was. We won't go there, but... <laughs> No, I think it's a good point. And I think, you know, for anyone out there who's thinking, hey, how do I, you know, go about this is, you know, ask others what you're good at. Think about what you're good at. Try new things. And over time, you'll figure out what that right combination is for you. And that can change sometimes, right? What that combination is at one point in your career can be different at another. But, you know, try to make yourself unique and stand out. It always helps with moving up the uh, food chain, so to speak. And it helps with your compensation, the more unique you can make yourself. 100%. And just to build on the point you mentioned there, like asking other people what they think you're good at is so important. Like I know, um, like for years, I didn't think of myself as a particularly good writer, because to a certain degree, it comes kind of naturally to me. And we all have this 
terrible bias towards undervaluing our own skills and undervaluing that which comes easily to us. So if it comes naturally to you, you kind of assume, oh, this is just easy. You know, I wouldn't say I'm, you know, good at brushing my teeth or putting my shoes on. I just do it. I wouldn't say I'm good at writing. You just sort of do it. Everyone does, don't they? And when you ask other people and they say, oh, no, we think you're really good at that. And you go, oh, right, yeah, you can't do that as easily as I can, or that doesn't come naturally to you. This feels like play to me, but it feels like work to you. That's interesting. And, you know, be observant of those and take note of those because they can be really good hints for where you should, um, you know, start to spend your time and start to move your career towards. That's really good advice. I, I appreciate that. And yes, asking others is really important. And like you said, you often realize, oh, I'm good at something that you don't think you're good at. So speaking of writing, you know, I know that's something you do quite a bit. You wrote previously about how you were fired by Tucker Max the day before Christmas Eve. Can you tell our audience, for those who don't know who Tucker Max is, who he is, and then maybe tell us a little bit about that story and what you learned from it? Sure. So, um, yeah, for those who don't know, so Tucker Max is, uh, I think, a four times New York Times bestselling author. This may or may not be true anymore, but I remember at one time said so there were there are three writers that have only ever had uh, that have had three books on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. There's Michael Lewis, Malcolm Gladwell, and Tucker Max. Uh, those are the those are the three. Not not bad company is what you're telling me. It's pretty esteemed company. <laughs> as a fan, as a fan of all three of those. So Tucker wrote a bunch of books in the sort of, um, I think, mid-noughties to late-noughties, a, a genre of book that's sort of broadly called fratire. And it was essentially comedy stories about him and his friends in college and in law school, getting drunk, going to parties, doing the the things that you do when you're 23 and um, you know haven't got a tremendous amount of real work to do. Hilarious books, sold millions of copies, uh, made him incredibly successful, ultimately turned one of them into a movie as well. And kind of after he'd retired to a certain degree from writing, he, he had a, a few different entrepreneurial ventures and then started a, a company that was then called Book in a Box and then became Scribe Media, which was essentially um, like a gold-plated professional publishing service. So if you had an idea, you know, take yourself as an example, you're you're running the FPNA guy. You have a ton of really good ideas about um, you know how to make it in the world of FPNA, but you don't have the time or necessarily the expertise to actually sit down and write you know sixty five thousand words into a book. But you're well aware that a book might be a really good marketing tool. It'd be great for your career. It's something you can sell. You can own the rights to it. All that kind of good stuff. Scribe Media would help you write and publish that book essentially. So do a bunch of interviews with you just like this. Turn all that into a manuscript help you edit it, help you uh, design a really good cover, publish it on Amazon to the world. So that was the company. That was the company that I joined as the first full-time employee in January 2015. So Tucker and his uh, co-founder, Zach, started it in, I think, late 2014. I joined in early 2015 um, as the first full-time employee, flew out to Austin, Texas, and the three of us sat around a coffee table kind of figuring out how to build this company, which was really, really good fun to start with because I enjoyed the, you know, kind of greenfield space, chance to build out a company, build out some processes. What do we think this looks like? What should the customer journey look like? How do we make all these different systems interact so that proofreaders get what they need at the right time, the cover designers get what they need at the right time? Um, and it's a great client experience from end to end, and also it's profitable for everyone involved. So that was really good fun for about the first six months. And then in the second six months, we kind of did most of that to a certain degree. And my role shifted into more of a kind of, I guess, like client management or account management kind of role. Where I was just kind of making sure everything was happening you know, keeping in touch with all the different uh, authors and clients that we were working with, keeping in touch with a ton of different freelancers. I was essentially kind of living in my email inbox from 8 a.m. in the morning till 8 p.m. at night. And I was doing this while working remotely. Um, so I was the only employee in the UK. No one else in the company was even kind of logging on onto Slack or onto emails or anything until about 1 p.m. in the afternoon. You know, I'd finish work at sort of six or seven, but then constantly be pinged with um, emails and Slacks throughout the night. 
essentially ended up at a place where like, I was doing a role that I wasn't very good at. I'm not particularly suited to it. My skill sets don't suit trying to do, um, you know, a thousand little things in a day. And um, I know we talked earlier about potentially hiring VAs and things like that. That would be the worst possible job in the world for me. I'm terrible at it. I like having large chunks of unbroken time to sit and analyze some data and pull together a model or a report or something. I don't like answering a thousand emails a day on one little things. Um, so ultimately, it was fairly apparent to everyone in the company I wasn't doing a very good job. And so Tucker and Zach quite rightly made the decision to let me go on December the 23rd, I think it was, was on the 22nd or the 23rd, 2015. And it was one of those where I, I was kind of surprised and shocked when it happened, but the overwhelming emotion I felt when they said, you know, sorry, mate, we have to let you go, was relief. When, you, when you're in a role where you're not doing a very good job, you know you're not doing a very good job and everyone around you knows you're not doing a very good job which is why they took the difficult decision, which is, like I say, absolutely the right decision for them and for me to say, look, this isn't working, this has to stop. So like I said, the first thing I felt was relief. Ultimately, I'm incredibly grateful for that because that meant I sort of took stock of my career at that point where I was sort of 25, 26 and said, you know what, I should probably go back into finance. I was pretty good at that, actually. That does seem to suit my skill set. It seems to suit um, what I like doing, the way I like to work. And so went from there and kind of Ultimately, like I said, I struggled to find a, a role for a while. But then after a couple of months, when my old mentor took a chance on me, and from that point on, my career has just taken off and accelerated. And I love what I do day to day. It's great. And it couldn't be more different from how I felt back then when they fired me. So I'll always be incredibly grateful for that. It was a, it was a great learning experience to go and do that role and join a startup. And it was also very good experience for me going forward. And also for me as a manager going forward to realize kind of what a situation looks like when it's not a good fit for you or for the company or whoever, and kind of the value of taking that hard decision, even if it wasn't me who took the hard decision, ultimately it was them. Perfect. Thanks for sharing that story. I appreciate it. So got a few more questions we're going to run through for you. This one, we're going to have a little bit of a fun question, then we'll get back to fp and I'm going to do one or two here. So I know you're a big fan of comedy, obviously Tucker Max, as you mentioned, that frat tire type stuff. And so I know you've done a comedy stand-up routine. So the first question is, do you have any good jokes you could tell us that you might use in our routine so that we could tell our audience? Nothing comes to mind. The The person that comes to mind when I think about this is if you ever watched Parks and Recreation, the character in that, Ben Wyatt, is played by Adam Scott. He's what I'd describe as like an outgoing accountant. So he strolls into this, um, you know, very straight up, tight-laced uh, accounting firm. And he says something like, formulas are my formula for Moolah and kind of rubs his fingers together like that. And all these accountants just fall over themselves laughing because it's the funniest thing they've ever heard. Because there's not a tremendous amount of comedy that happens in an accounting firm. Yes, there's definitely a stereotype for accountants. Whether it's uh, true or not, it's out there. And I know I have a little fun with it from time to time as well. And I think we all do kind of the jokes and different things that you see at the uh, accountant's expense. Yeah, exactly. Like I've got a pen, I've got a pen or a notebook on it that says like, it's a cruel world, but a cruel A-C-C-R-U-A-R. I've got a, a notebook here that says I was into pivot tables before they were cool. I had a former boss used to say, like, you can tell um, an outgoing accountant because he looks at your shoes rather than their own when they're talking to you, things like that. So I know the stereotype. I don't believe it, but. Yep, exactly. No, I have a few stickers down here that uh, embrace some of those. And I even have a book here in front of me that has Excel jokes. So I, uh, I totally get it, you know. So it's like the one of what does a data analyst, you could say an accountant, but what does a data analyst put in their hair? Some product. Nice. And now I need I need the uh, laugh button, right? So I can get my yeah. courtesy laugh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where's, where's the, the live studio audience for the FBNA guys, the obvious next step, mate. 
I'll, I'll work on that. So I know in addition to comedy, you've been quite a prolific writer. You have your uh, personal blog and a work blog. One of the articles you wrote is you kind of shared some lessons you learned from helping a company increase their revenue and profit. You talked a little bit earlier about that, but maybe could you talk about what the key lessons were you learned? I think you boiled it down. If I remember right, there were four or five kind of key lessons. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So that was um, the company I mentioned earlier. It's a company called Anabas that was a, a facilities management company. So essentially they do cleaning, reception, you know, maintenance, security, all that kind of stuff for companies who rent large boutique office space. So if you think about it, if you have a, you know, 100,000 square feet of office space in downtown Manhattan, because you're a, a law firm, your expertise is in, you know, writing memos and arguing in court and whatever it else it is lawyers do. You probably can't be bothered to figure out, you know, how many times a year do I need to get the windows washed or clean out the air vents or how do I get someone on security? You just outsource all that to a third party company. Anabas was one of those third party companies. Yeah. So when I joined, it was doing about 10 million pounds a year in annual revenue and kind of breaking even because it's all outsourced services. They're all super thin margin um, contracts. So we would always we were tendering out and bidding on contracts at about a sort of ten-ish percent uh, gross margin. So you can imagine how important it is to kind of control your costs and to also kind of bid those accurately. So when I joined the finan- the amount of like financial reporting was pretty high level, and it wasn't necessarily um, granular enough to enact to allow the company to make proper decisions. There's also just a ton of issues with things like costs being coded in different um, you know GL codes and nominal codes every month. So if you're trying to look at a trend of like how much am I spending on you know third party labour for my security, you have no idea because one month it's in this GL code, then it's up here, and then it's down here. <laughs> so doing any kind of that trend analysis is absolutely horrendous. So first and foremost, we're trying to clean up the books a bit and kind of, can we just get an accurate picture of our financial performance on a month-to-month basis? Because all these contracts are basically the same. You know, we do the same amount of cleaning every month, the same amount of man hours on reception and security and things like that. And the client's paying us a fixed fee. Like every month, our gross profit should be basically the same. Uh, And it wasn't, it was all over the place. So there's a bit of investigating (laughs) why that was going on. And some of it had to do with like, accruals and prepayments for things like, um, you know, a quarterly deep clean of your carpet in your big meeting room. You know, are we accruing for that properly once every three months, then the invoice hits, then you start accruing for it again. It's kind of getting the the nuts and bolts and the basics right like that. So firstly, getting the basics right in terms of the financial um, performance and the reporting. We, we did that, that took a few months. And once we had that, you can then level set for a budget and a forecast for next year. I think, okay, I, I know what steady state looks like. I can get an accurate budget. I can set it, like we said, just at the level where it's challenging enough that people have got to strive to try and achieve that budget. It's not so unrealistic that we'll never get there. So we put in place proper budgets. Then we started doing regular um, you know, finance review meetings with people who owned each of those contracts. Um, so there was ultimately someone who was responsible for delivering the right amount of gross profit on each of those outsourced contracts, sitting down with them every month and going, okay, your budget was here and you're here. That's better because of A, B, and C reasons. It's worse because of this and this. What are we going to do about it? Okay, great. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to follow up with you next month. Okay, next month comes around. You said you were going to do this. Did you do it? Yes, you did. It's had an impact on the numbers. Doing that constantly and getting the organization in the habit of that regular finance reviews. Firstly, just making sure people are actually paying attention to it. And secondly, making sure they know we're looking at it. They need to be looking at it. And their boss is going to ask them about it. So they need to be close to the numbers, kind of driving that cultural change over time. And then ultimately, um, being confident enough in our numbers that firstly, the, the CEO could stop worrying about all this all the time and focus on you know driving new business and having a good enough 
picture of how our contracts are performing that we feel confident um, aggressively bidding for new business and then ultimately winning that new business managing it in just the same way rigorous regular everyone's bought in everyone's target on the performance and doing that for three years in a row you know completely transformed that business so we went from yeah 10 million a year in revenue and sort of i think it was about eight grand in profit to 23 million a year uh, in revenue and probably 1.3 million in profit after tax um, and ultimately the the founder then exited a, a couple of years later for probably somewhere in the you know five to ten million pounds range something like that um i don't know for sure off the top of my head just taking a random guess at a multiple um but it just it was a really eye-opening example of the the power of basically you know the regular fpna cycle reporting actions reforecast report actions reforecast and driving that performance and driving that fpna cycle through the business and ultimately the the thing that really drives results is the cultural change right and people actually changing their behaviors it's not my numbers on a spreadsheet that made the business perform better it's pushing those conversations and pushing that ultimately the mindset in front of um or throughout all the people who own the performance but yeah it was, a, it was a really really good example of just the power of you know clean books and uh, and proper budgets it was great yeah, as I listened to you talk, you know, there are a couple of thoughts that came to mind, but I almost want to sum it up is, you know, creating that culture of accountability with the basics of finance. It starts with having clean data. From there, it's, okay, creating challenging budgets, learning to hold people accountable by having regular meetings and creating a culture that says, look, I got the finances taken care of. Your job is to make sure we deliver on those finances. I'm here to help you to discuss the numbers, to challenge you. And ultimately, you know, creating that culture and that trust so that everybody could do their job from the CEO to the sales team to increase the business. And he's not worried, is this month going to show I got zero profit on my contracts? And so he's digging into it, trying to figure out why, because the accounting wasn't correct or whatever the reason might be. So that that all makes a lot of sense to me. And I really appreciate that. It's that great reminder that often, you know, the things that make the biggest difference are the basics. It's the simple things. It's the old um, Charlie Munger quote about take a simple idea and then take it seriously. You know, that's the key to success. So I think, you know, like you say, if you get your transaction reporting right, your P&L is correct, you're driving a budget and a target and then the accountability piece. But it all starts with like, are we getting the basics right? And are we doing the basics very, very well? And if you do the basics very well for a long time, you know, it, it really pays off. It's very true. It's amazing how much that can make a difference of just doing the basics. So we have one more question, then we're going to move into our get to know you section and wrap up here. So you had an article that was picked up by Business Insider called The Reason Billionaires Keep Working. So I'm curious, what was that experience like having an article picked up by Business Insider? It was weird. I think that was in, it was in the kind of 20, uh, maybe 2015 or so, 2016, something like that. And like back then, I I wasn't writing as much on my blog, but like I was writing a lot on Quora. If you ever like remember when that was big pre, you know, ChatGPT, it used to be the thing that you would ask for answers and it would provide them for you, but in a matter of days and weeks rather than, you know, in seconds like ChatGPT. <laughs> I think the, the question was, you know, something like, why doesn't Warren Buffett quit? And, you know, um, or like, why, why do billionaires keep working? Why don't they just enjoy their money? And my point was, which I wrote somewhat succinctly, is that, um, you know, someone like Warren Buffett or Elon Musk, I think were the two, you know, names I picked out of a hat. They're not, you know, striving to get to a number where they've got enough money in their pension so that they can go and play golf for the rest <laughs> of their life. That's obviously not what they're doing. And if it was, they would have quit years and years and years ago. They're doing what they do because they love doing it. You know, someone like Warren Buffett, for example, plans to give away the vast majority of his wealth anyway. He doesn't care about spending the money on himself. That's not what he's doing. He's doing what he thinks he does best, which is, you know, capital allocation. 
and the numbers and ultimately his net worth is really just a way of keeping score. Like, but that's the score of the game that he is playing, and he likes playing the game, so he's going to keep playing the game. The game happens to be go and sit in an office somewhere in Omaha, Nebraska, and read annual reports and decide which companies to invest in, which companies to buy. But that's what he loves doing. And if you retired, you would say, "What do you want to do with your time?" And he would say. I want to go and sit in an office in Omaha, Nebraska and read annual reports and allocate my money. That's what I want to do with my time. So I'm just going to do it. And someone like Elon's doing it because, you know, he feels a, a deep kind of responsibility to push for the change he wants to see in the world. Again, it's not about, you know, once I get Tesla to a market cap of this and I'm worth 250 billion, then I'll have enough to retire and, you know, buy the, you know, private jet and the yacht that I want to buy. He feels a, you know, a deep mission and that's how he wants to spend his limited time. So that was my thought on why billionaires keep working, speaking as someone who is not a billionaire, but speaking for them. That was my answer. So I, I put that on Quora and um, it just got, it got a ton of traffic for whatever reason. I think it got sent out in one of their daily digest emails. I think it ended up being read something like 4 million times or 5 million times. And at the time, Business Insider um, and the Huffington Post and other people would essentially just um, troll Quora for really popular answers. It was the you know the 2016 equivalent of um, accounts on Twitter that just find really good memes and just repost them over and over again for the traffic. Business Insider saw me put that on Quora and saw oh that got five million page views. Let's stick it on our website and hopefully it'll get you know a few hundred thousand there. And um, so they they DM'd me and said, do you mind if we republish this on um, Business Insider? And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. I didn't get any money from it, but it was you know nice to see my name up in lights and take the take the logo and stick it on my uh, my own personal website and say as seen on. Nice. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. I appreciate the answer. And, you know, if I get to 250 billion, I'm not sure I'll keep working. I might just go do something else for fun. But, you know, it won't be the pension issue, as you mentioned, for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is the get to know you section. This is a short section. You get no more than 30 seconds to answer each question. The goal here is to keep these succinct and we'll wrap, run through them, kind of almost like a rapid fire type approach. So what is something interesting about you that makes you unique that not many people know? I would bet there are very few people in the world who are accountants who have ever done stand-up comedy in front of a live audience. I would agree with that. I like it. So if you could meet one person in the world, dead or alive, who are you going to meet and why? And it can't be Tucker Max. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not Tucker Max. So I think the two that came to mind were Charlie Munger um, and Alexander Hamilton. Um, Hamilton, because like prolific writer, incredible mind what a period of history he saw in his life and profoundly influenced. And Charlie Munger, just because he's, you know, one of the wisest people I've ever come across, someone I consider a mentor sort of from afar from reading his writing. Yeah, Charlie had a lot of great quotes. He'd be a great one to meet. You got to love him. Um, so what is the last thing, and we're going to say you use chat, G- you asked chat GPT related to finance, Excel, FP&A, or you can generative AI if you like a different platform. Um, it was SQL code. So I was trying to pull some data from our data warehouse. And this goes thing back to the skill stacking thing. I know a little bit of SQL, not enough to be a proper data analyst, but enough to help out in FPNA a little bit. Um, but not enough that I didn't keep getting an error message for some reason. I had no idea how to solve it. <laughs> so I just copied and pasted it into ChatGPT and said, what the hell's going on here? Um, and ChatGPT pointed me in the right direction and helped me out very nicely. Nice. It's definitely good for those type of things. So what's your favorite uh, feature, function, favorite thing about Excel? Uh, the one I use 50 times a day is XLOOKUP. VLOOKUP is old hat. XLOOKUP these days is the most useful thing in finance in uh, Excel by far. I, I do like a good like, XLOOKUP. That's a great one. All right. So if someone's starting their career today in FP&A, what advice do you have for them? You know, I think we've touched on a bunch of the um, important key points already. 
do like do the basics really well. Work hard, figure out what your boss wants and what the team needs, deliver it, have an eye on quality. Always be thinking about the um, you know, the quality of the materials that you're putting in front of someone. Always be looking a couple of years ahead of you in terms of your career. Who's where I want to be in a couple of years? What can I learn from them? How do they think about things? Can I ask them for advice? What do I need to do to get to that next level? And always have your eye sort of, you know, six, 12, 18 months out in the future. That's the, those are the main things from my mind. Great. Thank you. Appreciate that answer. I think there's a lot of good advice there. So last question before we let you go, if someone wants to learn more about you or get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Sure. The best way is probably Twitter or X. I'm not sure what we're supposed to call it these days. <laughs> um, I still call it Twitter because I'm old school. Um, so you find me at Twitter. I'm at Andrew G. Lynch, A-N-D-R-E-W-G-L-Y-N-C-H. Uh, you can check out my newsletter, which is netincome.co. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, my personal website, andrewlynch.net, which I occasionally update. Um, but yeah, Twitter or netincome are probably the two best places to find me. Great. Well, we'll put those in the show notes. And thanks for joining me today, Andrew. Appreciate it. Appreciate getting the opportunity to chat with you. You know, try in the future to uh, not get fired right before Christmas if you can. And we'll uh, chat with you again soon. So thanks for being on the show. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. Absolute pleasure. 